Hey everyone, I'm David Brussel. And I'm Marcus Terran. And this is The Thermal Review, a podcast about sensing, imaging, and automation advancements from the perspective of a couple technology geeks. In each episode, we discuss how the world is changing for cloud-based monitoring, quality assurance, and non-destructive testing. From toothbrushes to automobiles, earbuds to mobile devices, and toys to semi-trucks, lithium-ion battery technology is finding its way into just about everything. As such, the demand for battery materials, innovation and electro-design improvements in manufacturing, and the optimization of charge density are ever-increasing. To stay competitive, manufacturers of manufacturers of lithium-ion batteries are challenged with maximizing battery performance and minimizing cost uh, to keep the adoption of lithium-ion battery technology economically attractive. Inside this episode of the Thermal Review, we will discuss how infrared thermography is being used to optimize lithium-ion battery development manufacturing, storage, usage, recycling, and even disposal. Good day, Marcus. Dave, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you this day? Not too bad. Not too bad. Seems like we just met not too long ago in our previous episode where we were talking about non-destructive testing to today where we're talking about lithium-ion battery technology and thermography. And we have a special guest with us today. Uh, good day, Jerry Beanie. Hey, Dave. How you doing? Hello, Marcus. I'm doing Hi. well. <laughs> Thanks for having me on this. So looking forward to it. Well, we're thrilled to have you, Jerry. Um, thank you for you know taking the time out of your schedule to meet with us. Again, the, the topic for today is, is, is infrared thermography and how it's impacting essentially the battery life cycle. And Jerry, maybe you can give us a little background uh, introduction. Uh, you're a director, a global director of business development for Teledyne FLIR. But what does that mean? Yeah, so I work within the uh, Teledyne FLIR Solutions Division where, you know, I directly kind of focus on markets and applications related to uh, productivity and quality, which, uh, you know, lithium-ion batteries falls directly into. So, you know, I've been with FLIR for, I think, somewhere over 16 years now, kind of lose count after about 15 um, there. But I spent about the first 10 years of my career um, at FLIR selling and supporting, you know, high-end thermal camera systems, kind of a broad of across a broad range of uh, different industries and applications. But a few, number of years ago, I moved into business development where now I kind of use that customer-facing sales experience and helping to develop and uh, implement some strategies that really help kind of drive growth um, for Teledyne Fleer in, in the future. So I think this is really kind of a great and relevant topic uh, today, especially given kind of that huge global push um, towards uh, renewable energies and electrification. So I'm really part of, excited to be part of the discussion. Awesome. Thank you, Jerry. And by way of introduction, we have Marcus Terran here with us, as usual, our president and CEO of MoviTherm. Marcus, perhaps a, a reintroduction to our audience? Yeah. So I, uh, I, I'm i the founder of MoviTherm, founded the company in uh, 1999, October 19th, to be exact. Um, so we're, we're in it for 23 years, um, almost. And have been congratulations. Working. That's a thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I know time is just flying, isn't it? Especially yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've known Jerry for a very long time as well, working with Fleer, Teledyne Fleer now um, on these uh, science cameras that we're using quite often as part of our solutions, and uh, doing you know automated thermography and non-destructive testing. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to to talk about this whole battery topic um, just heard in the news I think uh, LG is putting a big plan together in the US um, I think uh, in cooperation with Honda um, to to manufacture their new uh, you know battery packs for their uh, for the new electric vehicles coming up and then there's another there's another effort so there's a lot of lot of push in that direction for sure and we've seen it also in a lot of inquiries lately with uh, battery manufacturing, working on several projects there as well. So I'm excited about this topic today. Yeah, thank you, Marcus. And by way of reintroduction, my name's Dave Purcell. I uh, 
I've been with Mulvitherm now about a year, a little more than a year actually, but have known Marcus for several years and Mr. Beanie as well. In fact, I allude to this often that I used to work for this very large infrared camera manufacturer for almost 20 plus years. And that was actually FLIR Systems. Yeah. So Jerry and I actually go way back when Jerry talked about selling uh, science grade infrared cameras into the R&D and science space. Jerry and I were actually doing that together um, as part of the same team at FLIR Systems. And uh, in fact, that's kind of how we met Marcus some, what, 16 years ago uh, at FLIR Systems, really needing someone to help out when it comes to developing uh, a, a complete solution. Uh, whereas at FLIR, you know, we, we make awesome, well, they make awesome infrared sensors. And Marcus, what he is, his team brings to the, the table is, is creating a, a holistic or complete solution around that technology. In fact, let's 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 start talking about this lithium-ion battery market space. And from from your perspective, uh, Jerry, as a as a supplier developer of infrared camera technology, and now being in the space of business development, I mean, what what are you seeing out there? And maybe what kind of role do you see FLIR playing in that? Yeah, I mean, I think as Marcus kind of alluded to, there's there's a uh, just a ton of funding being put into the complete supply chain for, um, you know, battery development, battery manufacturing and production to support, you know, electrification and mobility type applications, especially I think the ones that most people hear about are, you know, electric vehicle, um, you know, manufacturing with a lot of the, the really large battery manufacturers, um, you know, looking to develop or, or build facilities, um, you know, at different regions globally, especially in the U.S. US as a lot of the, you know, the U.S. government and a lot of the different states, um, you know, kind of dictate the the move towards towards electric vehicles. So there's a there's a lot of, um, you know, funding um, out there and a lot of money being spent to kind of like spin up on that all the way from, again, the mining applications all the way down into, you know, the OEM car manufacturers like retooling you know, a lot of their car factories to, to support, you know, develop, you know, manufacturing of electric vehicles. So from a FLIR perspective, I mean, as you mentioned, we basically, you know, design, um, build and sell um, infrared cameras. So as we'll see, and I think we'll kind of discuss throughout this, this podcast, you know, since thermal, um, thermal cameras basically sense emitted thermal energy or, or, or ch- you know, changes in temperature. There's a significant number of, um, you know, areas throughout kind of the, the battery life cycle where thermal imaging can, can support from, you know, the initial R&D phase basically all the way out to, you know, like, you know, the manufacturing floor and even kind of like the, the, the storage and safety um, of them as well. So we've seen a lot of, a lot of interest um, in that, especially because I think every company is kind of moving um, in, you know, the automotive industry in general is kind of moving in that direction. Some, some people are a little bit more ahead of the curve than others, but I, I also find it very interesting. I, I say all the time, it's a little bit of a, a wild, wild west um, type situation where every manufacturer is kind of doing their own little thing. And there's, that hasn't been really a consolidation of, of an approach um, at this point, which uh, you know, from a ma- ca- thermal camera manufacturer is a huge opportunity for us to kind of get in there and, and use our knowledge to help, uh, you know, end customers be successful in, in, in their applications. Awesome. Thank you, Jerry. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there's many of the FLIR devices that use lithium-ion battery technology. So it's actually even driving <laughs> some of the cameras that you guys are producing, right? And, and it- it, it, exactly. Yeah. So that, yeah. So using those, the batteries are yeah very important throughout this. So yeah, you can use a camera that's using a lithium ion battery to look at a, at a, at a lithium ion battery. So yeah, it's a pretty closed loop. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, thank you for that, Jerry. Marcus, I, uh, any, any insight, ad, uh, additional observations from someone who's, you know, utilizing Jerry's technology, if you will, to create these uh, solutions around them. Yeah, we see we see beyond uh, electrical vehicle markets. Um, I mean, the traditional cars, if you will, uh, cars and trucks and those kind of things, delivery trucks. Um, you know, autonomous robots. Uh, we see uh, flying cars or like those those human transporting drones, if you will. Uh, they go more and more electric um, as well. 
um, and also um, a big push in the um, alternative energy storage market where you know it's it's a big issue with with solar because solar only produces when the sun shines and then the issue is that well how do you power everything if you're going off grid how do you power your your coffee maker or something at night or or whatever you know your microwave um so energy storage comes um you know becomes more and more of an issue as well um so there's there's battery needs all over the place i mean energy storage really is kind of the holy grail of 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 this whole alternative energy market as well you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's a good call you know it's because a lot of, with a lot of the the green energy they're not necessarily on demand energy sources so basically being able to have batteries available to kind of store that energy up so that it is available to the consumer on demand is yeah critically important so right right and and that principle or, or that you know having power on demand as 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 I read in our intro, you know, applies to everything from yeah, the toothbrush that that I happen to use for brushing my teeth. I I want to make sure that that's running when I hit the button, all the way up to keeping my my home uh, electrified, especially during the summer months here in New England. Especially this week when it's very high humidity, it's it's almost a hundred degrees outside. You know, having having power available at that time as well. Um, some of our listeners may may be aware that you know there's 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 energy storage or battery uh, storage the size of you know containers, uh, rail car container size type backup uh, battery storage that's uh, available as uh, backup power to make sure that you know again my air conditioning is running or or if a critical um, you know operation or process. Uh, doesn't inadvertently shut down because you know the power goes off grid or a plant goes off grid. So interesting, very small all the way to very very large. Um, the principles or physics behind batteries uh, are pretty pretty standard. Um, uh, we're we're talking specifically about lithium ion battery technology, but some of this uh, will translate over to other battery technologies as well. Um, I'm going to try to give a real basic uh, uh, background, if you will, to the anatomy of a battery. I don't want to go too deep because this is a podcast and in our video uh, stream uh, on YouTube, maybe we'll pop in a graphic or something. But very basically, you have uh, current collectors. That's at each end of the battery, right? Uh, your positive and your negative. Uh, those are your connection points, if you will. Connection point to pull power from or add power to when you're charging. You have a cathode and you have an anode. And the cathode, uh, it essentially stores, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a positive electron. Uh, it stores lithium ions. Uh, and uh, it's usually made from some type of uh, uh, chemical compound metal oxide. Now, that's probably too deep. The anode, it stores lithium uh, uh, ions as well. And it is the, the negative electrode, if you will, typically made from carbon. Ions will travel, um, you know, through the separator. Sorry. And, but the electrodes will travel uh, through your device, like a laptop. Or if you're adding power, it's coming from the circuit. I hope that makes sense. That's maybe a little too deep. But essentially what we're talking about here is anything that impedes that process of those flow of electrons and lithium ions can impact how well that battery performs. Or if there's something in the manufacturing process that impedes that electron flow or creates like a short, that could lead to something like thermal runaway that causes a whole nother batch of problems with, with fires. And there was a time when you maybe were seeing commercials or video clips, uh, uh, news articles around, you know, battery powered automobiles, uh, igniting and, and experiencing thermal runaway, those kind of things. Um, so that's a, a real quick review, just cathode, anode, separator, and electrolytes and current connectors that you connect to the ends of the battery. We're, we're, Jerry, you started to touch on this isn't, and, and, and that was the battery life cycle. Um, and, it's it's not just there's a demand for batteries, right? So we need to get batteries. It, there's a whole life cycle or supply chain, I think, is what you called it, associated with that, where um, you have uh, these these multiple phases of of the battery life cycle that include, I think, you touched on mining and refining. 
Uh, I know, uh, Mark, as you talked about, R&D and production, which is another phase. Once these batteries are, let's say, mined, produced, manufactured, then you, you have to worry about, not worry about, but there's a storage and usage phase, if you will, right? Um, when they're not in use, they're being stored, they're being powered, energized, and then when they're not being stored, they're being used. When these batteries start to uh, increase in age, you know, they start to lose some of their efficiency, but there is an opportunity for recycling. There's a whole market for recycling batteries and, and reuse. But ultimately and eventually there is this waste and disposal stage as well. So this is this is the battery life cycle, if you will, all the way from the mining, the production, the storage and use to the recycling and then and waste. And what we're again talking about today is how how this technology the teledyne FLIR produces this infrared thermography technology can be utilized at the different phases or different stages of that life cycle um and i mean we this this could be a very lengthy podcast quite honestly because we could drill into even the mining and refining phase right we could be talking about what happens there but we're going to keep it fairly high level we're only going to talk about a few of the stages like r d production and we'll get into the storage use and uh waste and disposal. Um, by way of review, and we generally talk about this, this is the thermal review, right? So we're talking about infrared camera systems, but I'm wondering, Jerry, for our, our listeners who maybe haven't listened to previous podcasts or aren't as familiar with infrared thermography, could, could you just kind of describe, explain to us what, what is infrared thermography? And maybe as part of that, how does an infrared camera work? Yeah. So, yeah. So for people I don't know or haven't, you know, know anything about uh, thermal infrared, basically everything, you know, is emitting thermal energy, pretty much anything above absolute zero is emitting thermal energy. Obviously the, the hotter it is, the more thermal energy that, that, that it's giving off. So basically a thermal camera utilizes a detector that actually is a passive device that just kind of stares out in the, into the scene and looks to kind of capture that, that thermal energy. There's different types of uh, cameras out on the market um, that utilize slightly different detector technologies, but ultimately what it's doing is it's basically taking that thermal energy, capturing that, and then transferring that into an actual signal that we then read off that detector and then take that readout from the detector and then calibrate that for temperature. So depending on exactly what you're doing, you you can do both like, you know, like you know, qualitative as well as quantitative measurements. So it's really depending on the application. You know, sometimes you maybe maybe just want to see a, a small thermal change. Sometimes you actually want to measure what the temperature is with a non-contact temperature measurement tool, like a thermal um, imaging camera. So there's a variety of different applications that 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 we can satisfy. Um, with it. So it's a fairly basic device. Um, most of the ones that you'll see out there are, are uh, microbolometer based cameras. We can think of each individual pixel as being a, a small constrained beam of it made out of a thermoresistive material. So when that thermal energy comes in and, and heats it, creates a resistance change, we simply run a constant current across it, measure what its voltage change is. It. And then we then calibrate that out, out for temperature and then represent that as an actual image um, on the screen, either on the screen on the camera or or a screen on your your laptop or your computer. So, what's awesome to me is that you. I mean, you describe what's happening at an individual pixel or detector element, but you're but in the camera you're doing that to thousands. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So basically, the uh, thermal sensitivity of some of these cameras is is like a tenth or even a hundredth of a degree, you know, Celsius change. So. You know, we can see very, very small like thermal changes and then actually calibrate those out for, for temperature as well. All right. Awesome. You, you talked about how infrared it, or the detector is a passive. I mean, you're not you're not exciting or sending out any kind of radiation or anything like that, uh, you know, towards the target of interest. Right. No, it's simply just in the referred to as staring focal plane array. So it's a 2D array of these individual pixels that I mentioned, basically just looking out uh, at the scene through a you know set of optics or, or a lens or something like that. And it's just collecting that admitted thermal energy off, off the surface of the material that it's looking at. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Um, Marcus, last time we were together, our focus was primarily on what we call infrared non-destructive testing. We talked a little bit about active and passive. And Jerry, as you're talking about this, you know, the, the sensor and the camera being being passive, um, uh, 
passive thermography is relying upon like the naturally occurring, if you will, uh, heat flow uh, from objects Correct. and targets. Yeah. yeah. But there are sometimes applications where um, maybe there isn't this naturally occurring. And Marcus, maybe you can describe for us again what active thermography is, where we're leveraging this passive, you know, camera, if you will, but adding something to it to, to maybe uh, tease things out. Right. Yeah. To tie this together with, uh, let's say, battery manufacturing or R&D purposes. So a lot of, besides lithium ion, there's a lot of different battery technologies that are being um, brought to market. They're being explored in the R&D phase. And, and the, basically what, what these manufacturers are trying to do is to try to, to improve the ability to charge these batteries faster with a higher current density and shortening the time because who wants to sit at a charging station with their car for 45 minutes, right? So they would like to get on their way in five. But the problem is you have to get that amount of energy in that requires a huge amount of current. And, and then if you have a high resistance inside the battery that creates a huge amount of heat, so all of these things need to be optimized and managed So from, from the energy density. But then on the other side too is when these batteries are being used and discharged um, the same thing is true where there's usually a trade-off between either you have a very high capacity battery, but you can only discharge it slowly, um, or you have a, a lower capacity battery, but you can discharge it at very high currents. So they're trying to find the right um, operating point between those by optimizing the materials and, and the electrolytes that they're using. And so that brings us back to... Um, the, the research that's being done on the materials. So that if, if I'm looking at the materials, what I want to avoid is any sort of imperfections. Because like you said earlier, if, if there are imperfections in the materials, they can lead to thermal runaways, shortcuts, inefficiencies in the process. So I, I may be misled by making an imperfect battery prototype because there's imperfections in there. And then I may draw the wrong conclusions that this approach isn't working where I, I basically screwed up in the manufacturing process. So what we can offer uh, at that stage of the manufacturing or the R&D process is to actually verify that the materials that are being used are very pristine, they're very clean, they're very uh, free of any sort of delaminations or contaminations. The issue with that is that at that point, the battery is not in operation. So there isn't really a change in temperature and therefore no what we call a thermal contrast to be exploited in the thermal cameras, you're looking at a piece that is basically probably at the um, equilibrium portion, meaning it's it's it has um, basically taken on the temperature of its ambient, right? Because it was sitting there for a while, unless somebody touches it with their fingers or something and upsets that equilibrium, but it, it will probably just sit there. So if, you, if you're pointing a thermal camera onto an object that is just at room temperature, you will just basically see almost no temperature difference and it's just going to be a gray noisy sort of appearing image there's no discernible uh, information in there that that can you know lead to any sort of uh, useful data so that's where active thermography comes in where we now come in and, and actually excite that 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 uh, piece of material by um, any means that are useful so it could be uh, a, a tiny little infrared emitter that just creates a little heat spot on it, and we may be scanning across the surface and just observing how the what the thermal connectivity changes are on the surface, for instance, over time. And that's where our active thermography comes in, where we actually, you know, try to find any sort of changes in thermal connectivity, um, and try to convert that into a result image, which then has that thermal contrast. Although that thermal contrast in an active thermography sort of a system is a little bit different than just saying here's a temperature difference. It's really the the relative, um, you know, thermal flow over time. So it's really more in the it could be more in the frequency and and uh, sort of domain rather than in, in in the time domain, depending on what we're doing, you know. But um, at least that gives us the ability to to control what's happening with a material without any sort of self-excitation in terms of temperature. Wow. Thank you, Marcus. Yeah. So, you, I mean, you, you're, you're describing looking at perhaps the electrodes even before they're packaged in a battery to make sure that the electrodes themselves uh, are absent of, you know, defect. 
uh, right. which, as you pointed out, if, if there's impurities or contamination or something that's leading to a short, that, that's going to impair that, that performance of that battery. So excellent, excellent yeah, description, too, of how that electrode, there's no charge on it. There's nothing going on to it. So it's a, you know thermal equilibrium. Right. Uh, so we right. provide that excitation. So yeah, in the R and D stage, um, excellent. Um, Jerry, are, are there are there applications that you're seeing out there as well in the R and D stage? Maybe even a little further on down after the electrodes have been packaged. I, I don't know what what are you seeing, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, once the the battery cells are actually you know manufactured, even in the the battery you know, cell manufacturing process, obviously, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you have, you know, anode and cathode, but you also have like the tabs or the way to basically get the, you know, basically get the energy to start flowing a lot of times. And, and this is where it's kind of interesting because of, there's a variety of different, like, you know, kind of form factors for the, these individual battery cells, but typically they're doing some type of, you know, if it's like a standard cylindrical cell, they're, they're putting that material in and they're, and they're doing like laser welding around it or something like that. And they actually want to look to make sure or verify the, the quality of the laser weld when they seal the, you know, seal the battery pack up or if it's a pouch style, um, you know, ba- battery cell, you know, that they're basically putting the little battery tabs on again, you know, that's, that's a welding process. Sometimes it's a, like, um, you know, hypersonic welding or something like that, or sonic welding. And they just want to look at the integrity of that weld, um, you know, in the process. So, you know, even from that kind of initial like battery cell production, you know, Marcus is kind of talking about all the constituents that go into it, but kind of throughout that, as they start actually building that up, um, you know, becomes pretty important to make sure that, you know, everything is done well, because if they have any type of, um, you know, potential like, you know, gaps or high resistance areas, so those areas of high resistance, once that current starts flowing, can be a problem area where it's start, starting to heat up. And one of the biggest things is if it's heating up, that is energy that's being lost as heat and that energy that's actually being transferred to, to, to being a useful, you know, electrical energy source for whatever the battery is installed into. And that even scales as you take each individual, you know, battery cell and build them into modules and larger packs, you know, you get more and more interconnections and, you know, whether they're welded connections or mechanical connections and things of that nature, you know, you want to make sure that you have as efficient of a, um, you know, electron transfer in these battery packs as possible because it directly goes to the efficiency um, of, of the battery as well, not just the materials, but exactly how everything's, you know, kind of connected up. And you can imagine if you have, you know, thousands of individual little connect, you know, individual connections and each one of them, you know, has a, you know, slightly higher resistance that is creating a little bit of heat. You start adding up all those kind of, you know, like losses in the system, you're going to drop your efficiency. So small little like efficiency gains on individual components ha- actually ends up having like a huge, um, you know, impact in the overall efficiency of, of the larger battery like packs or modules too. So interesting point. No, thank you for that. I mean, we, we talked initially about this anatomy with these, uh, you know, current collectors, but you have to connect to them eventually, right? The, the anodes and cathodes all have to come together and then connect somehow. These welds, I, I can't imagine them being very large in size in some instances, Jerry. Um, how, how, how can you work with infrared thermography still? Yeah. So, I mean, basically it kind of depends. There's different, there's different applications and it really kind of depends on the, the parts and what they're ultimately doing and if they're where in the process they're, they're looking at it. You know, sometimes the process normally, if it's a, you know, welded connection, that's creating some amount of heat on it, you know, using a, a, a passive, um, you know, thermal imaging camera is sufficient because there's enough thermal contrast there to basically see what you want to see and determine if there's a defect. Other times, because of basically the, the materials or they have a high thermal constant or something like that, you need something like active thermography to impart that, you know, that thermal variation in order to, in order to detect it. So, you know, we've seen things where it's anywhere from, you know, like I mentioned, like the, the little tabs on the pouches all the way up to the full packs where they're connecting a whole bunch of individual, you know, kind of D-cell batteries together with small little, you know, small little wires. So it's kind of a... a a full gamut there. So, 
Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And you, I, I know that today we, with, with the infrared technology, um, uh, there's, there's, there's the thermal sensitivity, um, and there's also, or the thermal resolution, but there's also the spatial resolution as well with these, these cameras. And I, I mean, I remember, you know, working in the science department at, at, at FLIR, you know, the 4X lenses with, uh, high definition, uh, cameras resolving down to, was it like four microns or something like that? Yeah, about that? four microns. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that depends. So, you know, depending on the infrared camera, you know, obviously the, the, the camera has a certain native like pixel resolution, but there's a variety of different like optics or lenses that you can put on the cameras, depending on exactly what your, what your target is, what your field of view requirements are, what your, in you know, individual like, you know, pixel resolution needs to be to, to see the specific defect, you know, and sometimes that's, you know, kind of fairly simple math to figure out like, you know, what, what you need. Cause if you can think about it, you know, you basically have a 2d array of pixels that are looking through a lens with this kind of a certain field of view. So as you, that you go from the camera and you expand out, that pixel gets larger and larger. So when you start looking for very small, like, uh, you know, defects or something like that, you want to make sure that you have sufficient, uh, number of pixels to actually, you know, at a size or a spatial resolution to actually see that or to, you know, image that the thermal contrast to see that defect. Because if you, because if you have a very small defect and the pixel's really large, you know, basically the camera can't see that sub pixel, you know, thermal change. It's going to basically just read out like the, the average temperature, you know, within that pixel area on, on your target. But there's a variety of different cameras from smaller, you know, smaller resolution native detectors all the way out to HD resolution cameras with, you know, 5X microscope lenses that will get you down to like three and a half micron per pixel spatial resolutions and pretty much everywhere in between, you know, and really it's kind of, you know, so it's, it really kind of depends on the application, what people are looking at. If they're looking at small individual components, you know, large assemblies, you know, things of that nature, there's a variety of different things that, that can suit. And I'm sure, you know, you guys at Movietherm too, you know, kind of tech, depends on that as well. You know, you can tie multiple different cameras together into your system to get kind of that larger mosaic of, you know, the, you know, of the part if you need to. Yeah. In fact, yeah, we've done some work recently with a, a staging application, um, uh, taking very, you know, small image snapshots, stitching it together, coming out with a huge I don't, I don't, I don't even know what the resolution was, Marcus, megapixel, and then some resolution of these very small targets. I'm right. curious, Marcus, we, we talked about lock-in. It was mentioned earlier, right? And lock-in is an amazing science in, 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 in teasing out very, very, you know, fine, very small defects. Is there a place for lock-in when it comes to weld uh, inspection on battery, Marcus? Yeah, there is actually one particular one, like like uh, Jerry mentioned earlier. There's there's different um, ways of of uh, these battery cells being welded together. Some some use a very uh, thin sort of a metal strip. Some folks even use that to be kind of like a fuse, where they have a thinner part, where in case there is a shortcut or an overload on the battery, it actually blows up and it just you know burns up and it's it just opens up like a fuse. Um, and, and then some other folks use little wires. You know, it, it kind of depends on on the design and the concept behind it. But what what everybody is interested in is is a, a low resistive weld, right? The connection from from the from the electrode of the battery cell, uh, the anode or cathode, over to the next one, depending if it's a parallel or series circuit. And then it's all usually um, welded back together to some sort of a bus bar. Which is a massive current collector that that then connects to something else. So the when you have hundreds and hundreds of battery cells there that are in series and in parallel, um, what's very important is that obviously the current flow is given, um, and um, uh, if there is a higher resistive weld, uh, what happens then in that section? You typically have uh, an increase in heat. What is problematic to some degree is um, these these materials. Sometimes it's like nickel wires or something, or nickel coated wires. They are very shiny. So um, from you guys that 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 know thermography, is like emissivity is is a huge challenge, right? So if you have a very shiny metal part that's very tiny, it's very it's very difficult to discern temperature from it or temperature differences from it because it's really acting like a mirror. Where um, active thermography or lock-in uh, thermography can come in there is that 
it is so sensitive to the tiny, tiniest little changes that we can, for instance, during um, the uh, the load testing, what a lot of manufacturers do, they they put the the battery packs up, and they they're performing a load test. They 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 have charged up the battery pack, and now they're performing and and then pulse they pulse loads on the battery to really drive the battery beyond its specified capacity, typically, and trying to do a very violent discharge for very short periods of times. And they do this repetitively. And doing that moment, that's basically make it or break it sort of a test to just full on stress the pack. Um, doing that test, we could lock into that uh, discharge moment and then see any sort of temperature changes. And, and the advantage of using lock-in thermography there is that it actually, um, the algorithm of lock-in has like, um, you know, fast Fourier transform uh, algorithms built in. And it tends to only respond to the frequency of excitation so it really just uh, filters out any sort of reflections and everything else. And what you're left with is really just the temperature changes, um, you know, expressed in, 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 in a phase angle, if you look at the phase image. And you can really easily see where's their weak weld, you know, without having any sort of reflection issues and that sort of thing. So that, that's where that becomes in very useful at the like end of line testing of battery packs and those kind of things as well. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. So we've talked a lot so far about the R&D uh, manufacturing uh, stage, if you will, of that life cycle. As I mentioned, we could really drill in and spend a lot of time just uh, focusing even just on the R&D production one. Um, I'd like to shift a little bit and talk a little bit about storage and, and use. Um, so that's after the battery's been manufactured and they're they're in a setting somewhere where charging and discharging, maybe even just sitting, waiting until that power draw is needed. What, what, uh, Jerry, what, what are some of the things that you're seeing and how, how can infrared impact this phase of the, the battery life cycle? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, obviously, I mean, like Marcus mentioned a little bit about, about thermal runaway. So, so for people that don't know, thermal runaway is basically a, a, a situation where kind of the, the battery or, or cell, um, you know, has something happen to it where it kind of reaches a critical temperature and, and that temperature actually triggers a, a chemical reaction inside the inside the battery that generates like even more heat and then that increase in temperature further accelerates that reaction and creates kind of a little bit of a feedback loop of ever increasing temperatures to the point where like a fire or, or like sometimes even an explosion if there's a lot of pressure um that builds up in the battery um can actually happen so you know it, it's it's something that people are aware of so if like if you've you know, ship the ship something around these days, like a piece of electronics, you know, they'll ask like what battery is in it or it, heck, heck, if you've flown on a commercial airline flight recently and they talk about if you lose your phone in the sea, don't move anything because they worry about basically, you know, damage that can actually impart or create um, one of those thermal runaway conditions. So when these batteries um, are basically like assembled, you know, in stored, there's a huge concern with, you know, something within that battery, whether it be an internal defect, like what Marcos is talking about in the constituent materials inside that battery, or some type of like damage that happened that triggers a little bit of a, a thermal runaway condition in the battery or a, a temperature rise in that battery that r raises the temperature just enough that now it also proliferates across like all the different batteries, <laughs> you know, that are it's being stored with. And you can imagine it's basically like, you know, throwing a match like in, into a whole bunch of, you know, tinder or, or out in California with it being so dry or something like that. It just could spread like wildfire. And I think one of the largest concerns with it as well is that battery fires and specifically lithium ion battery fires are, are very difficult to put out as well. Um, and there's also a concern with basically the, the, um, the outgassing and chemicals and stuff that are in there. So it's very dangerous, you know, not only for the plant and the workers, but also the firefighters that come. Um, so we've seen a really large uptick in kind of like storage and, and monitoring and looking at those storage facilities to make sure that everything is, you know, kind of in a, in a good steady state and that there's not anything in particular happening um, with it. And I think you guys actually offer kind of a, an intelligent early fire detection system that kind of does that. Is that correct? 
It, it, it is, in fact, Marcus. I'm not. This is this is. I think this is a great example. I mean, the others were examples too in the R and D phase, right? Where uh, Fleer's pr- producing a camera that uh, works very well in, in, in passive thermography type applications, but maybe if you need just that much more. Uh, Movitherm has this capability where they can apply some active excitation and then some additional science through a lock-in uh, software and evaluation to really, you know, take it to the, you know, the next level, if you will. And, and, and this is another great example of where FLIR is putting together, building an awesome sensor, a camera. And these cameras are so great because, again, it's non-contact temperature. And as Jerry, you pointed out, it's both qualitative and quantitative. So just visibly, you can look at a thermal image and say, ah, there's something there getting hot. And then because of your technology and calibrating it to measure temperature, now I can put a crosshair on it, or I can draw a little area and say, give me the maximum temperature there. Now I'm quantitatively pulling out that information saying, oh yeah, this is, this is hot. There, I should investigate this. And this is where, yeah, what we're doing at MobiTherm which we call IEFD, which is intelligent-based early fire detection, is essentially taking your sensors and wrapping some stuff around it. Maybe, Marcus, you can talk about the, the stuff that we wrap <laughs> around it, which creates that complete solution for the yeah, customer. I think, we could talk about the different applications. Right, right. The, the, I think the application from tying it back to the, to the battery topic, there's, there's really three different stages for these early fire detection uh, um, applications. So one is really the storage, just to make sure that if you're storing large amount of batteries and stacking them on top of each other, you want to make sure you don't hit that that thermal runaway because maybe your forklift ran into a pack and something and did some physical damage and, and it's slowly running away and you don't notice that. So the storage um, for, for still batteries that are being shipped or being used then we have the the charging stations. We have a lot of uh, customers that have charging stations where they have either electrical forklifts or they have uh, uh, you know scooters or wh- whatever the case may be. We have we've had a customer um, that has a whole charging rack for mobile devices. You know they have a large team, and um, we had like a 64 bay charging station where they just put their mobile devices in and they wanted to do fire monitoring there. Um, that sort of thing. Um, and then doing the the recycling as well, which is also um, typically a storage situation, but typically recycled or batteries that are being uh, discarded for recycling already have more damage to it as well. So those are kind of starting from the application point of view, um, you know, areas that um, that that we we serve there. And then um, going back to what Dave said in terms of the the intelligence that our system has, we we have a cloud-based monitoring system where we can uh, tie in as many thermal cameras um, as we need to look at those critical areas. And we have um, kind of a hybrid situation where we have a, an intelligent gateway that sits on the on the factory floor that has logic running that talks to these cameras kind of in real time and then um, uploads to our cloud, um, you know, sporadically, like every few minutes or so to keep the, the data load down. And then if something happens, uh, then the data rate increases. That's kind of where the intelligence comes in. And we can we can actuate uh, uh, fire suppressants, like especially for a storage facility that, that does lithium ions, they have special fire suppressants that are obviously not water-based because that's not a big no-no for those cells. <laughs> so we can do that sort of thing. And, and you're getting notifications via text message, voice calls, um, you know, emails, those kind of things. And um, so that that helps out these companies to find their, their peace of mind to make sure that nothing happens. Let's say during the weekend, if the facility is uh, not in operations, but the batteries are there, to make sure that nothing nothing is happening there. You know. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, I think you make a good point too about the. Oh, sorry, Dave. Yeah, I was just just gonna say no, I think go you make a good point there with with respect to you know the charging, discharging of or the the fast charging too, because as you mentioned, I mean, there's a little bit of an interplay between you know wanting to charge the you know recharge the battery as quickly as possible, but that's also at a risk, you know. So yeah, we've had a lot of people that do you know either real time monitoring of the, of those charging stations or just kind of from a from an R and D standpoint to figure out all right how fast can we charge 
recharge these batteries and not hit that thermal runaway threshold and a little bit below because yeah, obviously people don't want to, you know, wait for, you know, 45 minutes or a couple hours to, 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 to recharge their system to use it again. So they're trying to, you know, dump as much load into it as possible, but yet not actually hit that, hit that threshold and still be safe about it. So yeah, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge, uh, you know, area that people are using like thermal cameras for all the way from that kind of R and D phase to figure out what they can do to like, yeah, actually monitoring it when it, when it gets, um, you know, fielded out, out on the factory floor. Yep. And, and, it, and it's so connected and tied together, right? I, I mean, if there's, if there is an impurity or defect or something happening at the electrode level, and then you get later down the line in the, in the storage uh, or usage phase. And like you said, you're trying, now you're really stressing this battery, uh, charging it again, anything that's going to affect that flow of, of, of electrons and, and, and ions that can potentially, you know, increase temperature and then introduce that thermal runaway, uh, develop a short increasing the temperature running to that thermal runaway. Um, so all of it tied together. Marcus, you touched a little bit on, on, on recycling. And we've talked about this before, how, you know, there's battery recycling, and then there's other types of disposal and recycling. And, and part of the, the challenge uh, that other recycling centers are facing or disposal centers is that they're finding some of this battery waste ending up in their waste streams, for example, metal recycling. Right. And, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that, Marcus. Yeah, we have, um, we have a customer that actually had pretty severe fires in a, in a metal recycling facility where there were um, batteries discarded where, you know, you're supposed to take the batteries out before you recycle stuff, but not everybody does. <laughs> and at first, when I heard about this application, I was like, metal recycling, what do they care if they have a fire? Because it's just metal, metal doesn't burn. But it turns out they have a, a lot more than just, it's not as clean as you might think. It's There's a lot of rubber components in there. Uh, and other materials and solvents and everything else. So yeah, the whole pile can easily light up, um, you know, if given the right ignition source. And and those lithium packs are, you know, the the perfect uh, storm waiting to happen. And the problem is they they sit in there and they're getting hot, and it it actually takes quite a while before something is happening. And then they're reshuffling, uh, you know, the material around and dumping more stuff on it. And and every time that that battery pack gets impacted again, it's just getting that much closer to igniting. So with our um, early fire detection, we can actually detect hotspots and, and they can just go there and actually locate this halfway damaged uh, battery pack from a cell phone or whatever the case may be, might maybe a, a you know battery drill or something, and actually remove it from the pile and prevent like catastrophic fires. Because this one facility had a multi-million dollar sort of a fire going on i mean they shut half of the city down because there was so much smoke development the the epa came in the the environmental protection agency and find them all kinds of things because it's not just the fire and all the smoke development and, and and all the toxic gases that blows through the neighborhood now it's also now that you're actually dousing the whole pile now you got toxic water runoff and and that creates a secondary uh, environmental issue so it's it's a it's a huge issue and then you have the insurances coming in and i mean it, it's just something that that absolutely needs to be prevented and that's kind of where you know where we come in with those solutions you know mm. well thank you uh marcus um as i mentioned uh earlier there's 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 many stages or phases if you will of, of this battery life cycle and today we've 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 really just talked about uh, a, a couple um uh I, I guess I'm. I, the 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 question I want to ask before we wrap things up is is um, I guess where 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 do you see uh, us heading? Where do, where do you see thermography? Where do you see this battery technology? What are what? I guess I'm curious as to what 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 some of the trends or things are that that you see happening and 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 where we're headed. And, and maybe we'll start with with you, Jerry, uh, working out there in business development. What do you see some of the the trends to be and where we're headed? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think right now, um, I think as I mentioned before, it's a it's it's a little bit of a wild wild west because everybody's trying to play catch up, 
you know, and exactly how they're doing it. And everybody's kind of approaching it different ways. Um, I think as we kind of move forward, you know, there's going to be a lot more like learning that goes on from the actual, you know, throughout that whole like product lifecycle value stream aspect on where they can be successful um, with it, not only in, you know, using technology like thermal imaging to, you know, make quality products, but also kind of, you know, you know, have like safety, um, you know, built in into it as well to the point where, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a consolidation um, within the industry with respect to to approaches um, with it. What I've seen is basically different global regions kind of have different different ways of approaching it and things that they kind of care about where some, some manufacturers, some regions are more you know, care more about it from a, from a quality control standpoint, production throughput standpoint, uh, you know, other regions care a lot more about kind of the safety aspect um, of it, not just from a facility safety, but a worker safety um, aspect of it as well. So I think as right now we're kind of in that, that almost like startup phase where there's so much, you know, funding being dumped into it. So many companies are kind of playing from, from behind a little bit, all these new facilities and factories like Marcus mentioned are, are being built. People are just very trying to quit very quickly solve some problems um, the best way that they can with, you know, using thermal imaging lock-in, whatever they can. But I think as, as the industry matures a little bit, there'll be a little bit more consolidation, a little bit more, you know, testing standards and, and things al- along those to really make sure that everyone's kind of have approaching it ex- exactly the same way. And from our standpoint, we're just seeing really kind of that the the beginning of it from a thermal imaging standpoint, where it's being driven a lot of times from both directions. It's basically from the, the users of the batteries to the manufacturers of the batteries as agers try to figure out the best way to satisfy this huge need that's being created globally as we move towards, you know, the need for like, you know, efficient energy storage type thing. So we've seen a really large uptick in, in, in our business, you know, that's not even tracking with funding that's that that's out there just as basically they're they're trying to all the manufacturing and everything are just trying to find the correct tools for the job and we're just you know like like yourselves just trying trying to help them be as efficient at uh, you know solving their problems as possible mm, excellent wow thank you marcus same same question for you yeah i i see um I second that. That's that's definitely there, there. Seems to be definitely a scramble for solutions. There's also a lot of education that we that we still need to do. Which which I, hopefully this this podcast is filling a little bit of that gap to help people understand what they can do with infrared um, thermography here. Um, and it, I see a lot of what what surprises me to some degree. I see a lot of startup companies trying to tackle these problems internally. So they have a bunch of of, of uh, young engineers there. They're they're maybe fresh from college. They're trying to just like, okay, how hard can it be? And and then they're just trying to, you know, we introduce them to thermography, and they're like, oh, we we're just going to develop our own solution in house. And I'm like, why? Because we can, right? So that's. But then I'm like, okay, is that really a smart um, move? Because a these these um, uh, engineers uh, they they are very smart. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to minimize their 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 position in their company. However, there's a difference between being smart and having experience and something, right? So, and then the, the second question then becomes: Okay, they they basically have to go through all the learning curves and everything else that we went through a couple of decades ago, and 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 making the same mistakes and learning the same things and everything else. And and from a return on investment calculation, I know that that um, wages these days are being sometimes overlooked as well. You know, nobody looks at the real cost because we have to pay this engineer his salary anyway. So therefore, it doesn't cost anything. Sort of a short time, short-sighted kind of a view, which I can you know hear resonating sometimes, um, which is obviously not true. But that's kind of what it sounds like. Versus hiring a consultant. Oh, now I got to dish out some money for this consultant. Um, but then the the issue then becomes that um, we often get then called back when they get stuck. And then they're like, oh, well, this is not working and your camera's not working and that's not working where it's really not a not working situation. It's more a you don't understand what you're doing kind of a situation. And therefore, you draw the wrong conclusion. And then you may actually 
discard that as a possible solution because you drew the, the, the wrong conclusions on this thing. And that's very hard for us to navigate as a supplier. Like, how do we help these folks out? You know, on one hand, I can't be, I mean, as much as I like to educate, but I, I, I can't take, um, you know, hours and hours and hours out of my week to, to, to teach somebody how to develop a system that we offer uh, as an off-the-shelf solution, if you will. That, that doesn't make sense. Um, so I, I see that sort of a trend happening, and I'm wondering sometimes, uh, you know, is, is management in, uh, in these companies, are they aware of what they're doing? And also, how much is that distracting them from their core competencies and, and their core focus? Like, well, if, if they are a battery manufacturer or a, an electrical vehicle manufacturer, why, why do they concern themselves now with trying to, to do inspection technology that's really just incidental to, to, to fulfilling their goal? Like, why do they tie valuable engineering resources up to trying to solve a problem that other companies have made it their, their life's mission, if you will, to, to provide? You know, that somebody needs to explain that to me because I haven't really quite understood why, where, where their thinking is coming from, you know? <laughs> You've seen that in more experienced companies that kind of know what they don't know, obviously, as you have a, you know, a huge number of people that are retiring in the baby boomer generation. They kind of need a, a lot of that intellectual knowledge has kind of moved outside of the company. So they need people like you that can provide solutions, taking our heart, like a Teledyne FLIR piece of hardware, implementing it into a solution that can be deployed to kind of untrained workers that can kind of provide that like results out of push of a button that they don't have to, you know, have any, any real kind of training for, and that the results right. are just, are just immediately ava available. But going back to your comment about the, the startup type stuff, I find that even in like larger companies that you would think that they would have a singular vision and a singular path towards an approach that, depending on which group you talk with, they have, you know, a completely different approach, you know, you know, for, for the application versus like a different group at a different part of the business are going completely in a separate path with, it. and there is no singular, you know, voice. And at what point does that divergence actually come back to, to an actual workable solution for them? And trying to wrangle that sometimes can be a little, little bit of a, a political challenge internally with some of those companies as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. excellent you, point. You, you mentioned, uh, you know, the 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 more mature companies, they, they know what they don't know. But I, you know, there's these four stages of knowledge, right? Well, like when you're very young, you you don't know, right? Then if you if you're going towards your like let's say teenage years and a little bit further, you, you know everything, <laughs> <laughs> and then it gets into you. But the the third phase is almost more dangerous, and it's it's like you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And then it gets into yeah. you, you know what you don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that's what we see that you don't know what you don't know. And, and then that's the, the most dangerous phase. I always think as an outside observer, you know, we, we have the tools, we, we have the knowledge. And, and then we're like, no, we, we got it. We got, we're just going to develop this in house. But we, we still sell the camera. We, you know, we're trying to support the effort. But then we see, uh, you know, the efforts are just like you know it's 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 i don't know we we would like to help more but we're we're not allowed to help more because they want to handle it all in house and it's like it's hard to watch sometimes you know you just um yeah it is hard to watch sometimes uh <laughs> I'm, I'm trying really hard not to put on my 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 strategy uh hat and talk a little bit about the importance and need of focus, right? And, and sometimes right. that's what it boils down to, right? And you mentioned this, Marcus, is like our company has a mission and this is what we do. It's sometimes the hardest thing to do uh, as a company and maybe even as an employee uh, of a company is saying no to things uh, in the spirit of staying aligned or focused on whatever that mission or strategy is. Um, right. it's the hardest thing to do, uh, by not doing it though, you can make a sacrifice in both your efficiency, which is what you're touching on. And I also believe in your effectiveness of what your desired result is. Right. So right. I'm getting a little strategic now, but <laughs> that's, that's, that's where I love this partnership, if you will, that 
Moldytherm has with Teledyne FLIR. And it's been in existence now for 16 plus years. And uh, both Jerry and I, we and Mark, well, we were all there. We all played a role in, in initiating that relationship years ago because there yep. was a need uh, for a customer, a problem that needed to be solved that as a provider of this thermal imaging sensor technology, we, we couldn't complete it, if you will. It, so that's where that partnership started with Marcus, who could wrap this solution around this infrared technology that FLIR does very, very well to create something that is more out of box, if you will, for the customer. So they can stay focused on their strategy, on their mission, and not de get derailed in the minutia of things. And, you know, Jerry, I know this is the same at FLIR. We, we sign NDAs with just about everybody. I think it's 99% of the customers we work with. And we respect that and we protect that intellectual property in, in that we share in. And we never share that. But as we're working and solving problems, we gain experience and knowledge. It doesn't give away trade secrets. It doesn't give away um, you know, somebody's IP, but it does allow us to make better solutions, make them more effectively and make them more efficiently. So I think that's an interesting point that you bring up, Marcus. And I, I, we, well, I've been in discussions before where we talk about the speed of innovation and how it's accelerating. Things are changing so rapidly. Was it Justin Trudeau who said, you know, the rate of change will never be as slow as it is today. <laughs> it's only going to get faster. And so having this opportunity, this ability to plug in with folks who can provide solutions and bring in that expertise. And I agree, Jerry, I think that aging, uh, very knowledgeable workforce is moving on and it's being replaced with a different workforce, just different. Uh, but maybe more uh, reliant upon that expertise of FLIR and of Movitherm and others. Sorry, got a little philosophical there. <laughs> no, and, and and you make a good point though, Dave. And as well as things where you know we we obviously have uh, you know both you know Teledyne FLIR and Movitherm have have the ability to kind of take what is happening out in the industry and in the different applications without exposing IP, but kind of aggregate all those requirements into a solution that we can, you know, kind of better everybody um, with. And that's probably one of the biggest challenges I think everybody sees sometimes is, you know, and, and I think Marcus touched on this is getting people to appreciate the the experience that's behind the solutions that we provide isn't basically because of one person. It's an aggregate of all what the market and the applications our customers kind of need, you know, a, a, as a whole to kind of building that a little bit, you know, a trust for, for a little bit of that to get people to, you know, and, and end users to kind of appreciate that there's behind this one product or this one solution, there is so much experience and knowledge that factors factors into that, that them to try to climb that mountain is, is a pretty significant advantage that, yeah, just plugging in and, and, and you know, giving a call to, to yourselves or Teledyne FLIR to kind of just talk about like, you know, the application and, and potential hardware solutions with it will definitely accelerate, um, you know, their innovations. So, yeah. Yeah. No, thank you, Jerry. Well, I think this has been a great discussion, um, but I think that that wraps up this episode. Um, we, I, I, I had this this thought, and I guess I wanted to share this as we close here. You know, we do have a lot of experience here, not only in this podcast, but within our organizations and companies. And we don't expect you uh, to to just rely upon us in, in blind faith, if you will. We. We are all about educating and, and, and helping our customers, and many times we think of them as partners, enhancing their awareness and their knowledge. And in that spirit, um, if you're interested and want to learn more about infrared thermography, there's, there's no better place than to, to, to touch base with the folks at Teledyne FLIR, uh, their website has a huge knowledge base there that you can plug into. I've seen some of the articles and information, Jerry, that's there on your guys' website about fire detection, battery, automotive. I mean, it's it's vast. But you've got a guy like Jerry Beanie that you can plug into, and I don't know how many field salespeople you guys have now, but it's it's got to be huge in the U.S. 
Um, yeah, I've lost. Alone. Yeah, yeah, lose count, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of feet on the street. Yes, <laughs> but there's this resource both, both, there. both directly with Teledyne Fleer, but uh, you know, with like partners like yourselves as well. So yeah, so I, I guess I'm I'm saying don't don't just take in blind faith. Plug in and talk to us. And if you can't find the resources that you're looking for to get spun up on infrared thermography, whether it's uh, cameras. Uh, the different kind of cameras, the different techno uh, detector technologies, the wave bands, those kind of things, applications, you know, please, you know, reach out. You can find that information. And, and the same thing goes if you're if you're interested and want to learn more about this active thermography. You can go to the Teledyne Flare guys as well. You can come to Movitherm. Uh, and and uh, I love our website. One of the things that I noticed right away when I came on board with Marcus was just the the, the the knowledge base library is huge <laughs> and it's amazing. Uh, there is information there very specific to non-destructive uh, testing, active thermography, and there's information there very specific to battery, uh, battery life cycle and early fire detection. So I'm extending that invitation to our listeners and all to, to please plug in, leverage this, this knowledge that's here and don't hesitate to call. We are more than happy to, to talk. Uh, with with folks and and help you solve problems. That's that's what we're here for. Um, Jerry, uh, Marcus, thank you again, and thank you for our listeners for joining us to to listen how thermography touches the different stages of the lithium ion battery life cycle. Um, we 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 invite you to subscribe, you know, to your you know to this podcasts on your favorite platform, whatever that is. Uh, we also broadcast uh, the video edition of this podcast. And I, uh, Yadira, who produces things behind the, 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 the scenes here, we'll see if she can even put in some graphics and things in the, the video um, portion, or, or I guess uh, a version of this podcast to even enhance more education and, and knowledge. Um, but, uh, Jerry, uh, any, any parting remarks to our listeners, but before we let you go and thank you again for taking the time to join us. Well, yeah, th thank you for the invitation and, th and thank you, Marcus, as well. I think this has been really good. So yeah, as, as Dave mentioned, if, uh, you know, you have any interest in just kind of discussing your application from a thermal imaging standpoint, feel free to reach out to, uh, myself or anyone at Teledyne FLIR, or if you even wanted to have conversations, uh, you know, about solutions with whether it's even passive or active thermography, or even just, you know, thermal cameras in general, the folks at uh, Movie Therm are, are a great um, resource as well to you. So, but yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you for uh, listening to us today. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> thank you, Jerry. Good, good to see yeah. you again. Marcus, any party? Definitely fun. Um, yeah. Again, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm I'm excited to see our our podcast evolving. I think this is going to be episode five, I believe. And um, thanks, five. thanks, thanks, Jerry, for for being a guest here on on this podcast. Really, our, our first external official guest. <laughs> well, we'll see if you invite me back. So, <laughs> so yeah, you know, we're, we're trying to obviously improve. Um, you know, our podcast and hopefully folks find it uh, uh, valuable what we have to say and, and, and discussing these things. We're open to any sort of uh, suggestions from, from our listeners as well. If they want to hear about any particular topics that are related to, to infrared thermography, you know, quality testing and any sort of things that they have in mind, uh, we're always open to to um, looking at that and, and maybe making this part of our next uh, podcast as well. So I encourage everybody to leave comments um, maybe in the YouTube section if you want or in any of the, uh, the podcast um, sort of distribution channels, uh, whether that's iTunes or, or Audible or whatever else is out there, Spotify, I think. Um, and also go to our website uh, at www.movitherm.com for any more uh, information. And yeah, I'm excited to, can't wait for the next podcast and we'll, we'll see what's, what's up next for us. Excellent. Thank you, everyone. Thank mm -hmm. you.